Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today my good friend, David Bennett, and he is the author of A War of Loves, The Unexpected Story of a Gay Activist Discovering Jesus. He has an amazing story. You're going to hear bits and pieces of that in this episode. Uh, he was on the podcast a couple of years ago where he told a more um, lengthy version of his testimony uh, in this podcast because he's already told his story before on this show and many times elsewhere. I told him to just give a shortened version of his story. Um, but we got into all kinds of super interesting conversations surrounding sexuality and God and the church and uh, all that jazz. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only David Bennett. David Bennett, so good to have you back on the show, man. It's great to be back, Preston. Uh, And you've been on a sabbatical, is that right? Yeah, it was a, technically it was called a study break, um, because I didn't have like a specific nice. one project that's kind of working on, but man, yeah, just to get out of the, we were out of the country for a little bit. We were out of the routine. I didn't check social media for like two months. That, that alone <laughs> or, or, or oh the gosh. news, I said, you know what? I know that like checking all these news apps every morning I wake up and next thing I know it's been like two hours and I'm gone from article to article. I'm getting pulled to the left. I'm getting pulled to the right. I'm like, I know they're trying to suck me in and get me angry. So I click on more articles. So their advertisements go like, it's all a machine, you know? And I'm like, to get away from that for two months was incredible. (laughs) Honestly, I, I think like, I'm doing my doctorate, obviously, here in Oxford, and that's one of the things I'm probably going to have to do for about the next nine months. Yeah. You know, it's just go completely offline because it just pulls you in Mm -hmm. at every angle, you know, and especially the conversations we've had, like things have developed. There's like just constantly new things happening (laughs) and you just can't constantly, you know, you can't constantly take that in. You have to also have your other life. You, you know uh, what I, otherwise, you know, it becomes, yeah, yeah. go on. Yeah. I, I, you, so I think for some people going completely offline, deleting accounts, that's possible for others. It's like, well, I can't go completely off. What I ended up doing is just getting them off your phone. And when I want to tweet yeah. something, whatever I'll, and, but I'm, I've gotten so rigorous, rigorous with my schedule that I'll say like, okay, four thirty to five on Wednesday afternoons, I'm going to go on. I'm not going to look at comments or anything. I'm just going to tweet a few things, uh, post some things on Facebook because I, part of getting information out there and people hear about a blog or a podcast I've done through social media. So I kind of have to get it out there, but just to have that disciplined where I'm not, where I'm in complete control of the app, whereas it's not in complete control of me, but I notice when it's on my phone, it's, it's controlling me and I'm in, I don't want to be controlled anymore. You know, um, I think the other level of it is just when you're in COVID-19 lockdown (laughs) or like, you know, you're constrained and constricted, like there's not many other ways of communicating with the world. You know, it's like you want to, you're tempted to be on there because you almost want a sense of community or a sense of connection with someone. And then you see that the world is actually going through incredible suffering at the same time. And like, you know, you only have so many human resources. Yeah. 
resources right. to to minister to that. And so, yeah, it's something that I think draws you back to Jesus because he dealt with these kinds of conditions in his ministry in terms of right. like him constantly being threatened or unable to give, and he would go away with the Father and then come back. Yeah. So I think what you've done is really great to take yeah. that time you know of just and i think it's something i'm trying to learn too that i'm not very good at yeah no, <laughs> um, none of, so yeah no, as an extrovert i'm like let's go see the people you know <laughs> um, <laughs> i love the people and jesus is like you come away with me and i'm like I'm, yeah like yeah but you're not physically present you know and <laughs> so it's always that you know collective charismatic worship has always been my strength but that's not available too. And so, uh, it's just, it's very hard for certain personality types, I think as well, who are more the extrovert, who's going to go to the community meal or whatever it is, you know, rather than spend time alone. But almost, I feel like we're being forced into a contemplative mode, which in a way is really fantastic for our spirituality, you know, to actually contemplate um, and I feel like, you know, as in the evangelical circles, there is a bit of an addiction to charis- like an over charismatic excess, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm the first person to go as charismatic as you can. Um, <laughs> but like, I think we need the contemplative and maybe that's part of the message of this moment yeah. in the kingdom of God is like, go contemplative, you know, it really is. This year is, it really is a, a turning point in, in many ways. And we're not even. And I say that, and I don't even know what we're turning towards or away from, but most people would recognize that there's that there's shifts happening, maybe even permanent shifts happening in, in, in culture. I mean, kind of like a post-printing press kind of moment where it's like the world that existed after the printing press is not the same that existed before. Obviously, you have internet, social media, pandemic, bam, bam, bam. And there's just, it's it'll be interesting to see in 20, 30 years looking back, and to see the, for good or for ill, you know, the kind of unforeseen changes that, that came about through this, this year. Um, we've got a lot to talk about, David, and I know we're limited on time. Um, I want to talk about yes. your book, War of Loves. Um, but for those who don't know your story, I mean, a lot of what you are thinking through, writing on, speaking on, you're, you're, it's, connect, it's rooted in your really interesting <laughs> <laughs> biography so why don't you give us a maybe a shortened version um of your story and the only reason why i want a shortened version is because i had you on a couple years ago you gave the long version and i know you're yes. so you're probably tired of telling your story but it's so powerful can you give us just a snapshot maybe of uh, an extended snapshot of of how you came to know the lord yeah well i always start with like i have a personal hashtag hashtag fabulous made glorious and i always share that because I think it makes every gay person or queer person in the room feel a little bit more <laughs> um, he's like oh, this gay celibate guy going to tell his testimony. Well, I, yeah, like, you know, it's like, it really is a story of being profoundly human and like focus, like, you know, as a young person, age 14, raised an agnostic atheist home, but went to a Christian evangelical school uh, in Sydney, Australia, you know, I went to a psychic once and, you know, I was an atheist at that point. Like I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And to me, Christianity was that kind of like Richard Dawkins-esque thing. You know, it was, it was really like belief in the fairies in the sky. And I just rejected it because I came out as gay when I was 14. And I thought, well, this religion is like depriving me of my rights. And so I will resist it. And I even remember being in a park when I was, uh, you know, about 15 
And I was with a boyfriend at the time and he handed me this small amber cross and he was from a like orthodox background, big O. And he, you know, he kissed me because I was complaining that he gave me this orthodox cross as a gift. And I was ranting about Paul and him being anti-women, anti-gay, and how could you ever read the Bible and like be supportive of this and why would you give me a cross? Your dad's like, you know, homophobic because of his religion and, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And he kissed me and then it was crazy because when he was kissing me, like a man pulled up on a motorbike and took a large stone from like the garden bed and proceeded to like throw that against my back. So mm -hmm. I just remember he, he, smelling the smell of petrol and the sound of like the throttle of the of the <laughs> the motorbike and just this rage filling me and thinking I have this cross in my hand that's been given to me by my boyfriend and that is the source of all of this homophobia, this wow. mm -hmm. center when we were young, 14, 15-year-old boys, you know, and just to see that horrific hatred and thinking this, this comes from Christianity, so I need to, like, get rid of Christianity. I need to, like, resist it. And I actually made almost like a an agreement with myself that I would fight Christianity in the public sphere so that gay, you know, LGBTQI people can have their rights. And so I was very much stuck in that polarity of like, I don't reject myself and therefore I must reject Christians wow. rather than there's a deeper way where I don't have, to, I can reject self-rejection without rejecting everybody else, you know, but I was very much in that mentality of if I don't reject self-rejection, then I'm rejected. So I must reject everyone that rejects me. And that kind of psychological space, which is just really not healthy for anyone. And I think one that many gay people we find ourselves in or queer people find ourselves in is we're just like, do I, I have to hate everyone that disagrees with me or I'm not free? And that's a really horrible burden I think I faced as a kind of young, budding, pretentious gay activist at the age of yeah. from five to 15 to would you, all the way up to like 19. Would you say that's a common assumption i i must hate everybody who kind of rejects me or not even reject but isn't fully on board with my ideas my worldview my my life or whatever um i think it's like more of a temptation because it's easier it's like i'm already exhausted by this existential problem of my sexuality and working it out and i just don't have time for that like mm -hmm. i have to delete that okay uh but I think what I didn't realize is I was still driven by self-rejection. Really? And so it wasn't until like I was in a pub at the age of 19 and there was this girl there and she just was different. Like I can't describe, she didn't feel to me like a Christian actually, or at least the Christians that I grew up with. Um, and so when I found out that she was like, she told me in the pub, like basically she knew God and that she was a Christian, I was completely amazed. Like, and it was interesting because three months before this, I'd been in a debate with my uncle over the Christmas lunch table. And he was like the Pentecostal Christian. And so I thought he was like pro gay conversion therapy and like basically my complete cultural enemy. And I had to destroy him with all the French theory I'd learned in my degree, and like show him that there was no God and you couldn't communicate truth with language and there's no absolute truth. So it's just all baseless and we should just stop with this belief in God stuff and Christianity. And so like I kind of, launched into this debate with him and he said well the problem with that is that you said there's no absolute truth and that's an absolute truth and you just communicated that with language you doubly contradict yourself <laughs> and i stormed out fabulously you know and just was kind of like 
I don't care, you're all bigots, and I don't need to live in your horribly bigoted world, goodbye. <laughs> um, and then he got into the car with my aunt, and they, she'd been praying for me at various times throughout my journey when I was like experimenting with Wicca and like neo-pagan religion and I was a performed Jew for a week. I got into theosophy. Like I was very eclectic in my personal spirituality at a certain point. Yeah. So she was often praying for me that I would have a revelation of Jesus. And for 11 years she prayed. So they're in the car and my uncle said, you know, when I was talking to David, I saw the Holy Spirit over him and he's going to become a Christian in three months time. And so exactly three months after this, I was in the pub with this this girl, this Christian girl who's a filmmaker, and her film was put in, you know, it was a final, she got it as a finalist into the largest short film competition in the world. So I was amazed by her work. Mm -hmm. Anyway, as we were talking, she, you know, I, I obviously was written on my face, this kind of disgust at her faith. And she said, well, what do you think about Jesus? And I said, well, clearly a wonderful man, but certainly not like God. I think this is human invented religion. And But if anyone's going to be God, I suppose it's Jesus. But I don't I don't believe it. I'm gay. I've read you know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Romans 1, Leviticus 18. I'm fine, thanks. Like, that's, let's stop the conversation there. You know, protecting myself against potential hurt or pain. Mm -hmm. And she just said to me, well, that must be really difficult. I I don't you know, I, I, I mean, I really feel for you in that. And I'm like, totally there for you. And it was like such an amazing, compassion, love filled response. It was, she wasn't thinking about herself or her reputation or like anything like that. A lot of Christians would think about or try to like make it an abstract issue. Like she needs to defend the Bible or <laughs> whatever. She's just like, yeah, wow. That's and like, then she said like, have you, but have you experienced the love of God? Hmm. And this question just cut right through to the, my center. And um, experience and charismatic experience of the Holy Spirit coming up on me like oil being poured over my head. And I heard a voice speak to me, say, do you want me three times? And it was like this really crazy, like someone knows exactly the depths of my inner being and soul, <laughs> like exactly what I want. And uh, yeah, so I in that kind of exchange saw like a veil over my heart and a pinprick of light go through the veil and just this breath kind of enter me. And I was, I, I didn't know the term for it at the time, but I was being born again, basically like <laughs> internally like awakened to God and like made sensitive to his reality and presence. And I think this is one of the crazy things about like, I've done work in apologetics and evangelism and things like that. And this is just something that happens. You can't make that happen. There's no mm -hmm. argument that can get someone there. There's no like personal yeah. quality or charism. It's like, you're just a servant of that grace mm -hmm. and you've just been given it. And when you're given it, you just want to give it to everyone else. And that's all you're trying to do mm -hmm. is share that love because it is the answer. It really is. And it's, it's cliche to say, but knowing the true ontology of love yeah. <laughs> is the human quest. I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't looking for anything like that. I was so angry with Christianity. Like, you know, it would flood out of me the rage. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I understand that anyone listening to this, like I understand that rage. I have that rage still in many ways against Christendom against like, I feel it and I know, but that love is greater. And that reality of Jesus is greater. The fact like it's almost like the, the resurrection touched me in that pub and the love of God was just poured out on me. And I had this tug of war over me and heard this voice say like, do you, 
will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, yes. And then I went home. My mom was waiting up. I had a fight with her. And I had to eat my words because I said, you need to choose between the delusion you've started believing in as a Christian and like your real son standing right in front of you. Mm. And so I told her that I'd become a Christian in the pub and I'd said yes to the question. And she was just amazed and told me, you know, I knew that this was going to happen because your uncle received a word after you had that debate that three months time you would become a Christian and exactly three months time since you had the debate with your uncle in the Christmas lunch table. And I was just amazed that my mother like already knew <laughs> that I was going to become a Christian. Like when I walk in there, it was absolutely a divine conspiracy. <laughs> and you can read about it in the book. It's, I still am amazed by it every day. Like I think about it and I'm like, wow, Lord, like what you did in my life. Yeah. I'm only really here because of that. I'm only really a Christian because of that. Yeah. And that's what remains that love that he poured out in my life. And I, I have to shape myself around it. I have to be faithful to it. And even though I fail and I'm imperfect and I'm human like everyone else, it's like there's this drive within me of desire of God mm-hmm. that has just been awakened and I, a burning fire. I can't, mm. it's like the prophet Jeremiah says, like I have a fire in my bones that I just can't contain. Like I have to follow him. Wow. Um, it's like I'm one with him. Like I, like I can't deny him, you know? Yeah. And so it's really weird because I've gone into this Christian world with all of its weird politics and its language. And it's hard because I'm just like, but I'm just a dude that accepts the love of God. And I'm just trying to tell other people about it. Uh, And I'm trying to learn how to do that well and take the time at university and write this thesis. And yeah, so that's that's my story. What's most compelling about, I mean, there's several things that are compelling about your story the one that always kind of hits me is that you, you, you know, were drawn into the kingdom through a very, very charismatic, for lack of better terms, experience, right? But you, that was not, God met you through an experience that you profoundly rejected. You were an academic, you were an intellect, you, um, if somebody else told you about that kind of conversion experience, you would have, you would have mocked yeah. them, right? Like, but it's, yeah, it's totally. I, beautifully ironic that God met you through the very, means that you found so silly you know (laughs) um yeah and and yeah like i think the ironic thing about being an in western post-secular intellect is that you realize you're kind of unable to do anything yourself like you're epistemically so limited Mm -hmm. that it's almost like you're prepared for grace Hmm. it's like you're you, you know it's like the augustinian thing like Pelagius, semi-Pelagius, like, you know, like, it's something that's a gift, and it can, God continues to give it, and I think that's the fascinating mystery that I'm still unwrapping. Um, Yeah. I think sometimes we can be very Pelagian about our minds and think, I can work my way into a right belief. Right. You know? And a lot of my work is kind of as an intellect is obsessed with the fact that like actually Christianity of its purest form in that way with Augustine yeah. is very much like queer theory. <laughs> it's actually very overlapped, yeah. which if, in that you can't do anything like I can't construct myself. I can't make myself anything like I need this agent from outside of me mm-hmm. to do it. And 
I wonder if that's why God's just allowing kind of Western epistemology to just collapse a bit mm-hmm. because he's wanting us to come back to that. Um, yeah. So then that took you, you ended up going to St. Andrews University in Scotland, doing a master's in theology, and now you're in your PhD program at Oxford University. No, no shabby institutions. Um, and in the midst of all that, yeah. you wrote your book, The War of Loves, The Unexpected Journey of a Gay Activist Discovering Jesus. That is a provocative title. Um, it came out two years ago, um, almost to the, well, yeah, just about just over two years ago. Um, how's the reception been with your book, your story? Um, I'm sure there's been loads of, I mean, you got so many great reviews. I'm just looking at the Amazon page now and you got like really high, almost close to five stars across the board. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Um, I'm sure you've had some critical feedback. How's the reception been and how have you handled that? You know, what's been really interesting is like, I mean, there may be people who haven't articulated their dislike for the book or something. Um, and there have been some people who really not enjoyed it, but I think the vast majority of feedback I've had has just been really positive. And no, one of the things I suppose that I was passionate about is like, I don't want to write a book that outlines a kind of systematic theology of how to deal with this. Like Mm -hmm. I want to write a book that was just like, this is my story. Like Mm -hmm. this actually happened to me what do you do in that instance? Like, here's what I've done. You know, I've, I've made, I've come to these conclusions and for good reasons, hopefully people can see that. And to just like really help a Christian understand or a Christian of a more orthodox or, you know, I don't know the word anymore, evangelical stripe. I I don't, I don't know. Um, a traditional Christian. (laughs) Even evangelical is problematic. They're all problematic. I don't believes in the gospel there you go there you go and like <laughs> and then we can argue what the gospel is but you know <laughs> someone who just doesn't understand gay people in a believing context right picking up the book and being able to be like oh that's what they go through and that's real that's not just a report on the media that's like fabricated that's real mm-hmm. and like wow what gay people go through mm-hmm. is really hard and like what would i do in that context and start to actually understand the lgbtqi plus community and then on the other side to help like the person that i was basically before i met this grace this person jesus in the pub filled with the holy spirit all of it like what how would i help that person understand Mm -hmm. what christians really want or what they're really going for and that they're really not there just to like deprive them of rights or mm-hmm. you know, oppress them or something like that. But there's this other goal, this other horizon that Christians have see, um, which you can experience and touch and like know mm-hmm. in that sense of personal knowledge. And I think that's what I'm trying to kind of get at within the book is get those two groups to understand mm-hmm. each other and create a bridge where there can be peace and mutual understanding and not always the same conclusions. Right. But like the gay person that can go away saying, actually, I want to follow Jesus or, Hey, I don't really agree with that, but I, I respect that that's where Christians want to go and I'm not going to persecute them for it and vice versa. You know? So would you, this is the most simple way I can put it, but I mean, would you see yourself as kind of a, um, playing the role of helping, LGBTQ community understand Christianity better? Like what, what is actual Christianity um, versus the kind of bigoted version they have 
all these kind of thoughts about, and then also to understand Christians, kind of what gay people go through, so that they can be less bigoted and maybe maybe um, um, less nuanced in how they think through the gay community. Is that your job title? <laughs> Whenever God does something in person, that's my job title. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm yeah, I'm still unraveling the gift of what God, why God did that. Yeah, you know, and I'm still working out what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I definitely think we're given the ministry of reconciliation as mm-hmm. Christians, and Paul says that, and. Let me tell you, there's a massive lack of reconciliation right now in our culture. Um, And whether I'm called to that my whole life, I don't know, but I definitely feel called to make a contribution or give my small, you know, investment into that to to make it a better conversation between the church and LGBTQI plus people. And I think we're starting to see some of the fruit of that. I think we're seeing a side B or, you know, gay Christians that have taken a more traditional stance on their personal sexuality. Like we're starting to see that become a major thing. And like some people are starting to even understand it in the secular world, Hmm. not many, but like some people are like, Oh, like if you're Christian and gay, there's not just gay marriage as the end point. Like, Oh, there's this other end point you could take. Cool. Gay people actually have the right to make a decision where they want to go isn't that wonderful that we've got to a point where people have that choice now Hmm. like and i think my my new the new voice that's coming out for me is i just want the right as a gay man to follow jesus how like however i feel you know ultimately i'm called to Mm -hmm. and and if that means like the side b traditional view which i think it does then i want the right to do that and why should that be controversial? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why should that not be allowed in gay circles? Why should that not be allowed in the church? Like, why is there so little support in both worlds mm-hmm. for that? Mm-hmm. And I think I'm starting to see that in both of those worlds, there is some support, but it's limited because of all the politics that has locked us up into an unhealthy polarization mm. that is destroying our culture, destroying our lives and destroying like, our spirituality too. Mm-hmm. And I think what is on offer in our culture, the desire culture we have is just so superficial. Like I have lost interest. I don't really care about Instagram. Like I don't really want that life. I want the deep life. I want the rich life, you know, and Christianity is really about following something, who, someone who knew how to live life abundantly, knew how to live right at the marrow of the bone, like mm-hmm. who, who is our master in learning to live that life. And I, I think that's just my heart is I just want to run after that. And I don't want to have to make excuses for that in culture. I want there to be a space open where people can do that, whatever it looks like, whether they're gay, Chinese, you know, with their, what they go through. I mean, it's crazy. The persecuted church, yeah. I'm passionate about that. Um, and that not just being something that like conservatives own or liberals own, but like, going deeper in a third way that breaks all of that open. Mm -hmm. And so like my thesis is called queering the queer because I want to queer what has become ideological. Like I feel like what being queer is, is now like very not queer. (laughs) Like today I was in the bookstore and there was like this book, like queer heroes. 
and it was like a whole bunch of people in popular culture like they're just not that queer <laughs> i find in the history of the church like a holy virgin that denied like the oppressive view of women in the Roman culture and said, no, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to be your property. I'm going to be Jesus's property. I find that queer. Wow. Like, and that, that actually doesn't have to do with all of this conversation we've had about sexuality and it doesn't have to do with gay marriage and it doesn't have to do with like this Western commercialization of gay identity. Like it's better. It's like more exciting. I'm like finding these things in church tradition. I'm like, whoa, these people like blew open hmm. these oppressive structures and uncovered faith and lived it and fought for it and like gave up their lives. And to me, that's the kind of queerness that I'm attracted to. Like that strangeness of oddity of Jesus who lived this really weird upside down Messiah life. You know, yeah. he didn't, he wasn't a Messiah you would expect. And it's that kind of like, queerness that I identify with as a gay man that's following Jesus. Yeah. And that's the kind of queerness that I'm trying to un unleash in my doctorate on some level. So um, when, you, when you say that's the title of your thesis, so in the UK, just for my audience, doctoral yeah. dissertations, as we call them in America, as we, they call them like a thesis. Um, like in America, I don't know if you know yeah. this, in America, if you say thesis, it's simply master's level on down. Um, but the doctoral dissertation it was so secondhand to me because when I did my dis my thesis in <laughs> in the UK. But so you're saying your your doctoral thesis slash dissertation that's the that's the title of it, queering the queer is that? Yeah, queering <laughs> the queer. How does homosexual celibatiskesis renew and inform the role of desire in contemporary Anglican theology? Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. If yeah. that, I don't know if that's going to sell, but that's that. That is a profoundly provocative and interesting title. So, um, and and you're under, um, oh, who's your uh, advisor? It's not. Um, so, my I'm I'm doing the Christian ethics track. So there are various different people involved in that, but the t the head guy was Nigel Bigger. Oh right. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I, he's not my my supervisor. Okay. Uh, an Augustinian classicist is my supervisor. Okay. So I'm very much looking at Augustine and like the Roman Empire. That's where I start. And really? I'm looking at like holy virgins because there was this huge crisis over holy virgins and how they broke open the Greco-Roman culture of the time with how women were treated. And I'm actually kind of saying gay celibates in a way are like these virgins, that there's this overlap and so I construct an analogy, historical analogy out of that of saying gay celibates are kind of like these holy virgins because they're refusing the various ethics that are on offer and saying, I want something else. And that's not wow. accepted or understood across the board. And therefore, that's highly queer in yeah. what queer theory actually says queerness is. A gay celibate is more queer. Yeah, because they're not going for the created goods of marriage. They're not like conforming to the norms of either the progressive or conservative side. They're saying, I want an ethic that runs deeper and problematizes the whole spectrum. Yeah. And that's exactly what queerness is supposed to do. Uh, yeah. So that that's that's going to be interesting. And I'm you're know, running that through contemporary Anglican theologians like Oliver Donovan, Sarah Coakley, Graham Ward who have bits of that puzzle, mm -hmm. you know, um, Oliver Donovan talks about the created order and living righteously according to the created order. And then I talk about how that's part of gay celibacy, but also not limited to that. It's also an erotic vocation. Um, what do I mean by erotic? I don't mean sexual necessarily, but about like, 
the impulse to be one, you know, um, with God and putting that first above the created good in order to witness to the created good. And then my other chapters, Sarah Coakley has written about new asceticism. We need a renewed Mm. desire culture in the church. I'm like, yes. And so I talk about that Mm. related to O'Donovan. And finally, Graham Ward's work, which is really excellent, is Augustinian in in pedigree, and it talks about kind of the erotics of redemption, like what will intimacy look like in heaven? You know, it's not sexual, but marriage points to it. And he has a slightly different view of how maybe gay relationships could work in with that. And I'm disagreeing, but I'm kind of also agreeing that the vision he has, at least of erotics in the redemptive sense is beautiful, like reoriented desire and saying, yeah, I agree with him, only I just think there's a created order aspect mm. to how we test what is truly like a purified eros, you know, for how we live. So that's a lot wow. to say very, very quickly, but that's, I'm trying to kind of do run through that because I think the Anglican tradition really does have, with its connection to Catholic, Roman Catholic theology and Protestant theology, the resources to do this better. Mm-hmm. There's, there's just so much rich conversation to bounce off. So that's why I chose Anglican theology. And I mean, uh, at least, I mean, I'm, you tell me, but it seems like there's also a strand of contemporary Anglicanism that is integrating modern charismatic expressions of the faith as well, which that, that seems to fit. That That's like your perfect storm right there, it seems like. Would that be accurate or is that not at all? That's accurate, yeah. yeah. And I think Sarah, Sarah Coakley in her systematic theology, God, Sexuality, and Self, talks about charismatic experience as like a vital part of knowing desire and re-adjudicating desire. Um, And so, yeah, like I think what's really great is I see that charismatic Mm -hmm. aspect of the spirit's work Mm -hmm. in, in our asceticism in leading us to a greater fullness. So there's, there's a quote from, um, I just wanted to bring up, a monk, <laughs> Edmund <laughs> Valstein, and he says, but if erotic love in marriage is an image of the divine love, then it might seem paradoxical that the monk or the gay celibate remains celibate. Hmm. Would it not be better to live an erotic life to the full in order to fully signify transcendent love? There is something to that idea which is developed by the Christian tradition in the theology of marriage as a, sac- a sacrament, a holy sign. But the life of celibacy forgoes the sign precisely in order to show that it is merely a sign. The intensity and immediacy of erotic passion for embodied creatures like ourselves is so great that there is a danger of staying with the sign and not being led to that which is signified. And I just love this quote. I think it like sums up exactly what I'm trying to do as a gay celibate Christian is I'm like, the sign is not the point. The sign is meant to point to something else. Marriage is something that's passing away, but this friendship, this spiritual friendship will remain forever. Mm-hmm. And so we've made marriage the ultimate, and that's the problem in our culture. We've made sex and you know a kind of like sexual eros the ultimate, which is not the schema in Christianity. Christianity turns that on its head and says, actually, sexual eros in marriage is meant to serve this other reality that's beyond it that is so beautiful and so amazing and why are we not focusing on that more mm-hmm. and i think the contribution of gay celibate christians or side b christians is to point more like 
um, avidly towards what Jesus is has brought in the kingdom and what is coming in the future, and to start that party now, like mm-hmm. rather than you know just say it's all about the sign, it's all about marriage. I, I wonder. So that, yeah. Go ahead, finish your that. Thought. That yeah. that is, and that doesn't deny that marriage is good. Right. It's a sign of that wonderful future. But I, I would, I would it say it also in a roundabout way would give and i gotta be super careful here so let me um let me give a test run of what i'm trying to say here and maybe i'll go back and it it would give it would put mixed orientation marriages in a better place as well because no longer is somebody looking for some ultimate form of desire satisfaction and then be frustrated well it can't happen in in opposite sex marriage because i'm not opposite sex attracted but if you put marriage in its proper place and put ultimate desire ultimate and I'll use your language, er- erotic passion <laughs> that goes beyond the tangible, physical, earthly, or whatever, um, then that would open up more more space for mixed orientation marriages. And I'm always hesitant talking about this, as, as you know, as you are too. Like, I don't want to say, mm. yeah, therefore just go find it. No, no, that, that's exactly what I'm not saying. I'm not even encouraging yes. people. I'm, I'm, I'm telling all people, gay, straight, bi, queer, whatever, to put marriage in its proper place. Don't try to squeeze more desire satisfaction out of it than it's designed to give you. I don't know. We see, I, I think that kind of marriage is much more queer than the kind of marriage we've upheld in a conservative heterosexual marriage. And then in like liberal gay marriage, I don't find those visions queer. Right. They're really not that queer. Like, because they don't destabilize the attachment to that sign as the ultimate end. Does that make sense? Like, Absolutely. That's what, that's what queer theory says queerness does. I think it's actually just holiness. What queer theory is really <laughs> looking for is holiness. And holiness does that. It doesn't let you worship the creation. It doesn't let you make it an end in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think that's the kind of crazy overlap I'm finding as I go really deep into queer theory and really deep into Christian like tradition and theology. It's like there's this weird overlap between queerness and holiness hmm. and what it does in delivering. You know, I think ultimately holiness is what queerness is, is seeking. Um, and and that, that's in mixed orientation marriage because you're not making the image, the sign, the ultimate in that. You're saying there's something bigger than this that completes it, (laughs) you know? So you're totally, totally on. It's very difficult to get the language to describe Mm -hmm. this reality. And I think that's maybe why it hasn't been articulated on a popular level well. And so I think my challenge over the next five, 10 years is how do I say this in a really clear and crystalline Mm -hmm. way so that everyone can, yeah. can grab hold of it do you do you like the stuff um, by uh christopher west i'm looking at my bookshelf for the book i'm thinking of not, not his theology of the body for dummies or whatever but he's he's got another one that talks about this idea of human desire being penultimate and divine desire being ultimate it sounds very much like what you're saying but is there is there i'm just trying to connect it to are you saying anything different than what he's saying or not different. I mean, you're taking it to a whole new level by adopting queer theory as kind of the scaffolding to <laughs> show that the ultimate end of queer theory is missing the mark, which is not something he does. But um, basically, would you, would you sign off on everything he s- says in that book, more or less? Or 
Christopher Christopher West. Yeah. Yeah. I think obviously you're probably bringing up Christopher West because Roman Catholic theology is highly Augustinian. Yeah. I'm personally still reformed, so I might not make all the moves, even with the idea of marriage being a sacrament. Like, I think it probably is. Okay. But what does that even mean as a Protestant? Like, as someone, you know, reformed, like, I think it is. But how do I rearticulate that without all the baggage of marriage being a sacrament in a certain way? And some of the ways that's been articulated in our popular culture, which I feel, you know, what's all about procreation, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, or, yeah. you know, well, I feel like as a, you know, someone who's more reformed, I'm like, procreation is like a contingent aspect of marriage. It's not like what makes marriage marriage necessarily. Like you have sterile couples, you have like this whole reality. So the whole natural law argument yeah. for me that probably he's bringing up, I'm not as crash hot with. What I love is the kind of future eschatological, like Jesus reaching in, restoring created order, um, like elevating created order and then exceeding it into what's coming. So there's no denial that there's a created order, that male and female in marriage is part of that, but there's a recognition it's become fallen right. and we need it to be renewed. And then there's celibacy, which comes alongside that process and says, yeah, the created order is the created order, but there's something much greater than it, which is coming. So it makes the kingdom ultimate. It, and it, it stops pitting kingdom against creation, which is what's currently happening in the academic world is kingdom ethics are being pitted against creation ethics or yeah. natural law theory is being, you know, pitted against the apocalyptic aspect yeah. of the gospel. Yeah. So like, I'm like, no, <laughs> they're both compatible. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, what's coming doesn't destroy the created order. It embraces it, but takes it beyond. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's Augustine for me, who I'm really pointing to. I, I think I stay with him because there's, there's resources in there philosophically and ethically that I think we desperately need right now. And I think Augustine is going to become a big figure in the next kind of 20 to 30 years. Huh. Um, I mean, there's issues in his early theology of not understanding how pleasure can be a good thing. He sees that more as a threatening thing because it kind of epistemically takes you away from God. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of anxious about that. He wants God to be the sum and bonum, like the ultimate good that we look at. Right. So, yeah, but later in his life, he does say pleasure in marriage and sex is a good thing. Right. So later in his writings... So, yeah, that's why you've kind of had this prudishness in Christianity that I don't agree with, that people say comes from Augustine. But if you actually read the whole, whole of Augustine, which I haven't done, but I've read you know, yeah. the good stuff, like, <laughs> I don't think yeah. I don't think that's what he's ultimately saying. Yeah. Um, so I would Christopher West. Yes. But I think even more point back to the original in okay. Augustine, the original genius. OK. Yeah. This is I, what I, what what. What I find fascinating about you, David, and I'm going to speak now not as a friend, but just as a, somebody looking at you as a public figure, is that when I, because as a friend, I'm too biased. I'm like, I love everything you do and say, and I've, I've got your back, and I just I learned a lot from you. Um, wish we could hang out more. Too, too bad we're divided by Hi. the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> um, yeah. But as I look at you, try to do like an unbought just from a distance, I'm like, I'm, I don't know a single person in this kind of faith and sexuality conversation that 
is so interesting and unpredictable. And what I mean by that is not unpredictable, but like you're able to, I mean, you, you identify as gay. You talk about, you're writing a dissertation on queer theory and talk about the positives of that. I mean, you, um, you very much understand, um, progressive Christianity and some of the, or just progressivism yeah. as a whole and understand some of their concerns around justice and, and inclusion. And yet you're very orthodox in the sense that you not only can stomach, you know, the traditional view of sexuality, you actually go out and defend it and celebrate it and aren't afraid to do that publicly. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I know of a single person who has such height, such, such heightened passions for kind of both sides of this if that makes sense does that how does that go for you does that work well do you have a lot of friends or no friends <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can imagine people wanting you My to put you at least I, <laughs> I can imagine people wanting to grab you and just kind of put you in a little more of a box like because you don't fit in a box and people are uncomfortable with that is that at all am i describing your life at all <laughs> oh like a hundred percent i suppose it's because i'm like a captive to Jesus like and when I sell out to either side of that I feel like I'm losing him wow I'm like, oh no 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 like there's actually like this moment I have sometimes I'm tempted by the progressive thing and everyone around me is just like going for it and everyone like is realizing that sexuality isn't just about ethics it's about suffering too and therefore like the only answer to suffering is just give you the give the person what they want now <laughs> and then they'll feel better and it's like and they'll be better and they'll flourish and then you know, whereas I know there's a deeper way, but I like, I feel that pain. I feel mm. that suffering that is in the progressive world and how they're trying to respond to it. And like my heart bleeds for them and with them, but my heart has been captured by Jesus. Mm. And so I know there's a created order. I know male and female matters. I know that he didn't deny that. I know that he spoke to Paul through the Holy spirit and taught us through scripture. And that it's a trustworthy authority and that it has to be, an authority for my life on some major level, or I'm not really living as a true Christian. Like I know both things. And I, if I deny either one of them, I'm not being who I am in Christ. So like, it's almost like I just, I can't mm -hmm. like, I just can't betray that. It would be like cheating on my spouse or mm -hmm. like, it's just unfaithfulness to me. Um, and like, sure, I'm tempted towards that. And I have days where you know, like anyone in a marriage has their bad days, you know, and where they're struggling or, you know, we have that as I'm married to Jesus. And, you know, a lot of the older source texts of Christian tradition talk about celibacy as a walk of being married to Jesus. And so I constantly come back to the question, I suppose, Preston, of like, how is Jesus feeling mm -hmm. about this rather than how am I feeling about it? What is this giving the reward to the lamb for the lamb's suffering? That's my question that like holds me in that place. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's true. I get rejected by both sides constantly and it's painful. And I wonder, gosh, like my humanity struggles, but I prefer that depth and richness and to pay the price for it to live a life where I'm betraying that. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't, wow. you know? And I think that's what's really interesting about a lot of progressive gay Christians is in a way there's an element of them that's like that as well. Like they don't want to give up on fidelity and marriage. And mm -hmm. So they're fighting for gay marriage in the church. <laughs> like, 
you know, so I can kind of like, I feel that, <laughs> I know, but I'm like, but Jesus, like, not just that, Jesus first, like, what does he want? And how do I give that to him? How do I give him the reward for his suffering? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I, that's just the question that has been marked on me the last year um, in a world of suffering. Wow. David, uh, I've got to run. You're amazing. <laughs> You're a beautiful human being and a just a yeah i really wish we could hang out more man i uh likewise um, well, we'll but find... now you're back from your sabbatical we can have a chat or something yeah. another time well there, yeah. there's uh I've, I've been talking to some people in the uk about possibly you know doing something in this conversation there i mean honestly i've and my audience i think knows this i you know lived there for several years have two kids born there we love 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 the uk so i'm sure and i know you come over here quite a bit too so um, we'll have to make it happen very soon. Um, your book again is War of Loves, the Unexpected Story of a Gay Activist Discovering Jesus. Would highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's endorsed by me and forwarded by NT Wright. <laughs> I just had to say those two back to back. Daryl Box, Sean McDowell, Wesley Hill all endorsed it. Um, it's a, it's just a fantastic, it's a fantastic book. It's so well written too, which is what I love. It's not just a good story. It's not just filled with truth, but it's written in a way that's just captivating. It's hard to read it without um, weeping, really, um, out of tears. Yeah, tears of like sadness and joy and all those emotions. It's just a really, really good book. So, um, yeah, David, I gotta run. Thank you, Th- Preston. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed this. I feel like we could do another, you know, easily another hour, but. Yeah. Um, and I want to hear more from you next time. Uh, yeah, but it's really good to see your face. You too. You too. All right. Stay warm. All right. All right, bye. Take care. Bye.